Hi, Anti-Dreaders. It's Kaylee, and we're just a few weeks away from the launch of Season 2. But we don't want to leave you hanging until then. So we've got another episode from another podcast to share. This time it's from Sea Change, which comes from the NPR stations in Louisiana, WWNO and WRKF. And it explores the environmental issues facing coastal communities. And this one is all about the idea of rethinking engineering, that instead of harnessing nature with levees and floodgates and dams, we can better reduce flooding when we work with nature. Without further ado, sea change. Take a valley, broad and gentle. Stretch it from the highlands to the sea. Cloak it with natural beauty. Build cities and towns along the wooded slopes, and you have the Valley of the Mississippi, the greatest in the world. This is the Valley of the Giant. This is from a 1940s documentary called The Valley of the Giant. Through that strong male voice and peaceful score, the short film assures us of man's power over nature. Well, really, the Corps of Engineers. But sometimes the giant gets out of control. Sometimes the rich valley lies helpless, defenseless against great floods, which leave terror and destruction in their wake. The Mississippi has a habit of flooding. Centuries ago, native tribes told the early European explorers to plan for it, that the river would flood every 14 years. To colonists, this was a problem. They were building towns and cities like New Orleans along the river's banks. And they wanted to keep growing, but the flooding made that hard. So they looked for a solution. The year after New Orleans was founded in 1718, it flooded. French colonists hastily built what would be the first levee on the Mississippi, although they didn't succeed in holding back high floods. And since that time, building levees has been the answer. After intense debates, the Corps of Engineers even made the controversial and fateful decision to only use levees to control the floods. They wouldn't do anything else. Options like cutting holes in the river's banks to let floodwaters escape were off the table. And they would block the river from flowing through any of its natural outlets. The once wild river was confined by concrete. But as critics had warned, the levees caused the restricted river to flow higher and faster which meant ever taller levees were needed. Which failed in the worst flood in U.S. history, the Great Flood of 1927, when levees broke, devastating the Mississippi Delta region. The Corps' answer? Build more levees and dams. In response to this crisis, the Congress of the United States passed the Flood Control Act of 1928. The Army engineers were instructed to develop and put into effect an overall plan for controlling the floods, which, for years, had been stripping the valley of its great wealth. There are now a thousand miles of levees and floodgates lining each side of the Mississippi River and its tributaries. Thousands of dams also hold back water and sediment throughout the Mississippi Basin. A big job. Infrastructure, we call it. In the spring and fall, when the giant river awakes to begin its headlong rush to the sea, these massive walls will stand as a bulwark to protect the valley. And so the future becomes one which holds new promise for the valley and the nation. The giant is being harnessed, slowly but surely. 
But the thing is, you can't totally harness a river such as the Mississippi. And research has shown that our efforts to tame the river have actually made our risk of flooding worse when you add climate change to the mix. We are seesawing between extreme events. In the last decade, we've seen unprecedented floods and droughts. The Mississippi River may not be totally tamed, but it is certainly not wild. It's no longer a natural river. But after all we humans have done here on Earth, what is still natural? And that's a point one of our guests today makes. There's no more natural nature left. As we experience worsening impacts from climate change, we're wondering, how can we rethink engineering? Instead of trying to control nature, can we design with nature? I'm Hallie Parker. And I'm Carlisle Calhoun, and you're listening to Sea Change. Today on Sea Change, we talk to two foremost experts about how they envision a future where instead of concrete, we turn to nature to protect us. Carlisle sits down with a MacArthur genius landscape architect with big ideas about how we can redesign our world. And a renowned environmental scientist who has studied coastal ecosystems across the world. I'm here with Kate Orff and Don Bosch. Kate's the founder of SCAPE, a studio that's worked with communities across the country to develop natural spaces that both enrich people's lives and protect them. She's a leading voice for using nature to help protect us from the impacts of climate change. And Don's an environmental scientist who's been dubbed the Admiral of the Chesapeake. The New Orleans native has spent nearly 50 years studying coastal ecosystems. The two collaborated on a project called Our Future Coast that envisions a more hopeful future for Louisiana's coast, where we're currently losing land at the fastest rate in the country. They say, a revived coast is within reach. Reconnecting the Mississippi River to our coastal wetlands means it could be far richer than anything we've seen in our lifetimes. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure to be with you. Bye. So let's first set the scene. A lot of the work you've both been involved with is happening here in the Mississippi River Basin. The Mississippi River flows from Minnesota all the way down below New Orleans, where I'm sitting, to empty water from more than 40% of the continental U.S. into the Gulf of Mexico. Kate, start us off. What is it about this river and this place that drew you to work here? Well, yes, I am a landscape architect and, and a professor at Columbia and as you just mentioned, the Mississippi River watershed is 40% plus of the entire country. It's you know, America's river, America's wetlands. It touches so many different states. And really, to me, it's also has a strong cultural, obviously, significance for our country, right? Our mythology in many ways is, is tied to this water body. So it's both a parable of what could go wrong, I suppose, in terms of this engineering approach and the way that the river has been modified and changed over the past century. But I also see it as a big opportunity for what we could do right in the future. So I'm drawn to it as a water body, as a story and a hopeful moment in our culture. And Don, maybe if you can dig into that a little bit, the ways we've managed this river in history and tried to control it and why that set us up for a lot of the problems that we're now dealing with. 
Right. Well, well, for me, it's personal history because I, I grew up and lived just blocks from the river uh, in New Orleans. So uh, it was there. I knew about it. It was part of my life. And as I grew older, I began to understand the changes that were taking place and our failure to think about the big changes we were making and the consequences thereof. So I spent a good part of my career working, doing research and, and helping to facilitate science on, on the coast. And I think actually before I knew Kate, I knew a book that she wrote and she focused on the, you know, the industrial corridor of the lower river. And what really impressed me about her approach, you know, as a landscaped architect, you think you're working on your backyard, your own little homescape. But she took an expansive view from the start, looking at the problems she just discussed of the whole river. And they include the vast development of agriculture in the river that's eliminated the vast majority of the wetlands in the system, caused the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, the ability to, to control floods and to build dams, which have, which have intercepted the sediment supply that's needed to sustain the delta. All of those things come together. So I had the opportunity to work with her. I jumped at it because, from my view, she was an architect who thought like a scientist in terms of the big picture and connection. And if you think about it, you know, we have this challenge before us and we're going to be talking about designing with nature, which is good. But in a way, what we've caused for ourselves is a major alteration. So we're under the pottery barn rule, right? We broke it, so we own it. And so we have to figure out best ways to fix it using ways that build on and use natural processes rather than fight them. Yeah. And Kate, Don was just talking about both the kind of gray infrastructure that we've built and then also our natural infrastructure, or what's sometimes referred to as green infrastructure. And your work kind of lives at the intersection of these two. Can you talk about that? So, you know, we have had a gray philosophy, and typically gray means what I would say single-purpose infrastructure. Largely, why it's gray is because it's usually concrete, which is gray, and and this kind of single-purpose infrastructure tries to like solve for one problem, i.e. you have a flood wall and you're assuming that you're assigning, uh, you know, solving for, in quotes, sea level rise or et cetera. But then what gray infrastructure kind of leaves in the rear view mirror is that, as I would tell you as a landscape architect, that landscapes are complex and dynamic systems that don't respond to one criteria. There's rain bombs, which are massive flooding events. There are issues of water quality. There are issues of depleting aquifers and so on. So gray infrastructure, in my mind, is a single purpose false solution to a problem that is too narrowly defined. And so I never like to compare that with green infrastructure because it's like, it's not apples to apples. They're two completely different paradigms of what will ultimately reduce our risk. And I think the green infrastructure very loosely covers what I would call a more nature-based approach, which is the idea that truly robust, interconnected natural systems, whether they're oyster reefs, mangroves, marshlands, etc., that these in upland forests, that these intact systems ultimately have massive protective benefit for a huge array of the many, many climate challenges that we face. I might just back up a little bit and reference the, the publication Petrochemical America that Don mentioned. And this was a true labor of love and kind of a love letter to the Mississippi as a system, in a sense, in that it was 
an analysis of sort of series of maps and drawings and text that kind of unpacked the the story of the Mississippi in parallel with the photographer Richard Mizrak's incredible photos that he took in 1997. And so you know, I guess Petrochemical America was really a story of the interrelatedness of the system that, that Don mentioned, right? That hog farmers in Iowa and, you know, soybean and corn in the middle of the United States and the sort of nitrogen chemicals that they use are in dialogue intentionally or not with shrimpers and oystermen and, and massive water quality collapse in the Gulf, right? So it's that all these economies, people, systems, petrochemical extraction, use and consumption were all kind of linked up around the system. So Petrochemical America was kind of literally drawing the lines that connect our oil-driven economy to the impacts in the landscape and the landscapes that we have made. Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought up your book, Petrochemical America. You work with the photographers, so they're photographs from what is often referred to as Cancer Alley. And then you provided a lot more context to the photographs. What I thought was so interesting is that you looked at the layers of history that got us to the point that that photograph was taken. And then part of the book looks to, okay, well, what now? If we think in a more hopeful way, how can we change? And I think that's what our future coast is about, right? It's it's like looking at the history, all the layers and layers of history that got us to this point. But instead of kind of drowning in the issues, the two of you said, well, actually, what if we're hopeful? What if we do everything right? What is possible for this region? Right. Well, you know, we have enough, so much doom and gloom. We have these maps that showing the state, you know, all in red, all the land lost and so on. How if we did everything right, what could it be? And so I started off by taking really a hard look at one of the major determinants of the future, sea level rise, right? I think we all know that Louisiana is very susceptible to sea level rise. I was already very familiar with the the science on which the projections of sea level rise are based and so on. So I had a, a good look at those. And first, first thing you understand is that how much the sea is going to rise depends on our greenhouse gas emissions and how, how warm the planet is. So I made the case of tying that back to state this, the state's policy. As you and your listeners know, uh, Governor Edwards had done something quite bold of, of establishing a, a goal to reduce emissions in Louisiana. And that's really giant. That's important because Louisiana is such a big emitter of greenhouse gases. So then we looked at more realistic emission scenarios, what we're likely to achieve. And what I found was that the state, this is not a criticism at all, they did it for good reasons to be safe. We're using really high projections of, of likely sea level rise. That assumed that we wouldn't do anything about greenhouse gas emissions, sort of a worst case scenario. And they did that because they were trying to make sure that we protected people in the coastal area. That's perfectly understandable. But if we're really interested in understanding what the marshes are going to do, we don't want to know how bad it could be. We want to know how bad it probably will be. And so I honed in on that. And, and what I discovered is that if you look at that more real, realistic view of sea level rise, there are a number of things that actually could work in the long run to help us restore and sustain the coast. Take, for example, the river diversions, like the mid-Barataria sediment diversion that's taken place. You know, there are estimates of how much land it would build and, and how long it would last. But those are using fairly high 
assumptions of sea level rise. If we were more realistic, those diversions will work even better. They'll create more land and it will last longer. So I tried to bring some optimism, but based on reality into the into the mix. And then we began, began working with Kate to kind of develop a visualization of this. And, and what I, I learned as a scientist from, from that experience, from Kate and her, her team, they're able to help us bring it into multiple dimensions, not only the vertical dimension, but people and uses and, and, and all the other things that come with it. So it gives us a more expansive understanding of what, what the future might look like in a way that people can relate to, people can see and understand in, in more powerful ways. Yeah, because these big ecosystem projects can be hard to wrap your head around, like the one you just mentioned, the Mid-Barataria Bay Sediment Diversion Project, which is a mouthful, but it is huge. It's the largest ecosystem restoration project ever in the country. And basically, what they're doing is punching a hole in the levee so that the Mississippi River will be reconnected to Barataria Bay. And this is happening just south of New Orleans. So the point is that the sediment from the river can actually get to the wetlands that are disappearing, which will help them over time rebuild. So your collaboration, Our Future Coast, focuses on how powerful these kinds of restoration projects can be that harness the river, right? So really nature-based design, which is the focus of a lot of your work, Kate. So I was wondering what it's like when you combine that type of a design approach with Don's scientific research approach. Yeah. So I'll start with just the the notion that, first of all, these kinds of collaborations, which are, you know, landscape architect science, you know, planning, these should be very, very regular and the norm. (laughs) So this should not be the exception. This should be the norm. And so what I felt like our future coast did in a very exciting way was to just take this concept of scaling to another level, right? So we have the scale of the entire delta. We were able to scale it to a number of basins and, and visualize what's happening in each of the basins. And then we we're able to scale to Barataria and then come up with, you know, a suite of interrelated projects, something like 16, that in combination had this catalytic effect by being combined. So I also feel like a project like Our Future Coast began to combine projects and think at a landscape scale, which is the scale that is the most desperately needed and the hardest, you know, that's why I'm I'm excited about it because I feel like it provides a different roadmap for how to think about these intractable challenges. And of course, our future coast, you know, I would just be very clear about that sort of had a bias towards nature-based solutions just because you know, I feel like, well, we've had more than a century for, you know, this kind of ideology to play out. And as much as the massive levees we see today have reduced flooding in certain areas, they've also unintentionally created huge existential problems, throwing this much needed sediment off the coast of the intercontinental shelf and treating this sediment that's needed to nourish wetlands almost as a waste product. It's created this kind of false sense of I'm protected, and it's cut off this notion of landscapes that are living and changing, and it's kind of locked into place sectors and stakeholders. 
But I do feel like in a way, part of the aspiration of the project was to say, okay, well, what if we unlocked this great infrastructure and we enabled some change and fluidity to happen in a way that was very, very mindful of the economy and the you know needs of local residents? Because right now, we're, economy is also locked into place and static. So we, in a way, I feel like the, the two are intertwined, right? The physical landscape that's stuck and locked into place, the political landscape that's stuck at loggerheads. So in a way, for me, landscape and letting that kind of system rebound and return to some of the bounty it once had seems also like a hopeful way to think about, you know, a revived economy. So we've been talking a lot about big systems, but let's bring it back to talking about people. Kate, the way you talk about landscape architecture kind of sounds like the way people talk about public service. Like you're focused not only on using design to help protect people from the impacts of climate change, but also on how communities live and how design can help reconnect people with nature. Yeah, yeah. I definitely feel like there's a very different way of conceiving what landscape architects do and how we think, which I've hopefully tried to advance in many, many ways in the past decades you know, so much of it is about kind of restitching what has become fragmented. <laughs> and that may mean what what are the systems that have become fragmented in the landscape, i.e. oyster reefs separated from, you know, the eelgrass separated from a shoreline. So that's like a physical thing. But then it's also how communities have become fragmented by superhighways or communities have been fragmented through redlining or other planning instruments. So I'm not naive to think that, oh, the world was once a perfect place and we're going to find our way back to that perfect place. Quite the opposite. But I do feel like part of the role of the landscape architect is to be a bridge. So that might be bridging in the case of our future coast sort of science and design. In the case of communities, it might be bridging to neighborhoods that have been separated through other physical infrastructure. It might be connecting people with the waterfront that once sustained them. So that's, for example, SCAPE is about to complete a very large, innovative green-blue infrastructure project here in the New York region called Living Breakwaters. So that's kind of an example of how I think, I guess, which is that, you know, need to bring together in this case, we built a kind of rock core breakwater with like really cool, intricate ecological features and plan and section that reduces risk and that helps to rebuild the shoreline, replenish the shoreline, reduce erosion. And then that breakwater is also going to be seeded with oysters and, and it's already attracted fin fish and, and seals and like this whole explosion of marine life. So in that way, that is a physical project in that it is a about one and a half mile string of, of these ecological breakwaters, but it is also a social project organized around people <laughs> because we have curriculum design for high school students to learn hands-on science and to learn harbor restoration and water chemistry and all sorts of things through hands-on learning. It's a people project because it supports teachers. It's a people project because the fishermen are super excited about it, you know, so it's it's also just very much about bringing people back to the shoreline as much as it is an innovative coastal infrastructure. 
Yeah, and you brought up oysters, which are something that have been a big part of the ecosystems and economies of where all three of us live. Here in Louisiana, oysters are still huge. We're the country's biggest supplier of oysters. But still, oysters used to be even bigger here. The Gulf Coast used to have these massive oyster reefs. There was even one referred to as the Great Barrier Reef of the Americas. And Kate, you live in New York. And Don, the Chesapeake Bay is your backyard. Two places that also historically had like, I mean, trillions of oysters, right? Like huge oyster reefs and oysters were big economies. And I think a lot of us think about oysters just being delicious to eat. But they were once like really big parts of coastal ecosystems beyond what we can imagine now, probably. So can you all talk about the power of oysters and then the oyster restoration projects that you're both working on? You're right about these major changes. Oysters are, are really important because they're sort of ecosystem engineers. They build things and make things happen and, and can change over time. And I live in the Chesapeake Bay region now. And the name Chesapeake means Great Shellfish Bay because when the colonists first came here, they they spent most of their time running into oyster reefs. There were so many of them. And Kate, I'm proud to say, is also he grew up here in Maryland, so she knows what I'm talking about. And they they were depleted to like one percent uh, or less of what they what they were from over harvesting and diseases that were introduced by transplanting, you know, foreign oysters into the area and things of that sort. So we've made a mess of this. But we've actually begun to reverse things by doing some targeted uh, restoration, building upon what we've learned about how oysters build reefs and so on. And, and, and so that's been very effective. And it's drawn, like as Kate said, it's drawn all sorts of other fish and crabs and other things around it. It's, it's really quite remarkable. But it's, they're also important for our, in our system for filtration of the water. Because we have this problem with, you know, excessive nutrients and a lot of algal blooms. And so they filter the water and help uh, help clarify things. One of the things, although this wasn't in the plan for these targeted restoration areas, one of the things we're seeing now is that they also are the nurseries for the other oysters. So we're seeing a rebound in the number of oysters that are settling from, you know, from the plankton as larvae elsewhere. Because now we've built this population and protected them of older oysters, of adults, mamas and papas. And so they are that that's really this broader effect. The other thing on this breakwater approach that Kate talked about, and this is being done precisely being done also in Louisiana, is to recognize that oysters can be a very effective means of shoreline protection. And particularly in an area that's in which sea level is rising rapidly because the land is sinking or sea is rising. Because guess what? You can place them down, you place rocks down and they're there and they're going to gradually submerge and so on. But if you have oysters with them, they grow upward. As sea level rises, they trap sediments. They help protect the marshes nearby. They break the waves from hitting the marsh edges that cause the erosion. And so in part of the master plan, part of the efforts that are going on, both by the state as well as by its environmental groups, Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana, for example, is a very active program of recycling the oyster shells and actually getting citizens, people, volunteers out to own this, to be part of this process of reestablishing these breakwaters, if you will, to help still the waves that are causing the marshes to erode, trapping sediments and growing upwards and, and producing larvae for the broader oyster population. So that's the sort of approach that if we thought about it, we could really make a big difference with. 
Yeah, kind of living shorelines. And Kate, I've seen a lot of your projects referred to as oyster texture. Basically, this, you know, an oyster texture is a, a frame which is trying to kind of center our attention that there's no more natural nature, so to speak, that these species need a helping hand to return. So at least in the New York Harbor, the amount of silt in the bay just basically smothers any native population of oyster out that would even be able to settle on the bay. So you have to lift them up out of that zone. So these species It's not just like nature will come back if we leave it alone. We've so dramatically altered our water chemistry, temperature, flow systems that oyster texture is a a way of communicating that we need a living infrastructure or design to (laughs) help these species get, get a foothold. I'm also just such a huge fan of the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana and the work there. And I really feel like With more people involved, this just becomes more and more of a movement in the sense that people get more tuned in to what's happening and what the kind of solution space might be. And seeing alternatives by literally working (laughs) to create those alternatives. But I just wanted to touch on one thing you mentioned, which is the reefs in Louisiana used to be like the Great Barrier Reef of the Americas. And let's just take a moment to contemplate that. This was once a system that was so vast that it essentially enabled this society to take hold here, right? It enabled the food, the coastal protection, you would say, from storms and so on. And just to contemplate the fact that at the same time that these systems, and similar in New York, was around 25% of the harbor was reefs, you know, the same moments that these systems were in dramatic collapse to zero to one percent, zero to one percent of their historic extents. At the same time, we're extracting oil and we are creating the conditions for more extreme hurricanes, more kind of weather action, more rain bombs, etc. So it's like just as these very protective ecosystems, we need them the most now, but we are now in a double whammy where we've eliminated ecosystems to the point of almost near collapse at the very moment where we are have created and fabricated this intense vulnerability to climate extremes. So, you know, we do need to amplify and ramp up the efforts to both reduce carbon emissions and our transition to a just decarbonized economy and also to rebuild these intact ecosystems, forests, reefs, marshlands, etc., mangroves, as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I think that's what the two of you have done together, is to say, what if we do both of those things? What if we don't stay on the same destructive path that we've been on? What if we start to rebuild these protective ecosystems? And as you said, nature's not necessarily just going to do that on its own now because of how much we've drastically changed this planet, but that we don't always have to destroy nature. We can help nature protect us from the impacts of climate change. And you both have talked about this, too. You know, Louisiana has historically been an oil and gas state, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't transition to a less destructive future. We need to kind of break that out and realize that oil and gas is on its way out. 
at least in terms of a fuel, we might, we might see to, to make some you know, petrochemicals that would definitely need, but its use as, as a fuel has got to go. And that we, we need to think about that future transition in a positive way, because we don't want the people and the economies that have depended on it. We don't, we can't abandon along the coast of Louisiana. Don't, we shouldn't abandon them. We should be rethinking how they can be involved in these new economies, more restorative economies, dealing with the transition of, of how we, what energy we use and how we use it. Uh, we really need some really critical thinking and leadership about that. And I guess just to build on Don's excellent response is just that we have to think about nature and the economy together. <laughs> right now, we've got 100 years of developing carbon consumption and extraction with essentially nature as a kind of a waste, <laughs> the waste disposal system. And that just has to change. And so I would just end on a very, very optimistic note that there's just incredible opportunity here. Like rather than be stuck in place in a stuck system, river system, you know, looking at the past of oil and gas that is being phased out on multiple scales, that there's this great opportunity to think about the bounty of the system that could be, and also the incredible opportunity and federal dollars and in private investment that is flowing in big pipelines towards communities and industries that want to push the parameters and look to the future and think about renewable energy, greener, cleaner energy. And so comparing and combining that with the great work that CPRA is already doing and the things are happening the coast, it's hard to not be optimistic. And I think it's really more of like a mindset change that than anything else that is needed to unlock that opportunity. Yeah, I love that as an ending thought. But Don, is there anything else you would like to add? No, just amen, <laughs> Kate. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Sea Change. This episode was produced and hosted by Carlisle Calhoun. Editing help was provided by me, Hallie Parker. Our sound designer is Maddie Zampanti. Sea Change is a WWNO and WRKF production. We're part of the NPR Podcast Network and distributed by PRX. To help others find our podcast, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think with a voice memo email to seachange at WWNO.org. Sea Change is made possible with major support from the Gulf Research Program of the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. WWNO's Coastal Desk is supported by the Walton Family Foundation, the Moreau Foundation, and the Greater New Orleans Foundation. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back in another two weeks. <laughs>